If you would, open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 18, as we continue our study there. Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 18, and I'll read through to verse 24. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom, and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given, if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who were enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So we last week talked about what we have not come to, specifically the details regarding Mount Sinai. And just to summarize that message, we talked about the grave and terrible sight that the Israelites experienced there on the mountain. And the encouragement was, essentially, thank you, Jesus, that this mountain, this place, is not what we have come to. We talked about what what does Sinai represent in terms of how one might relate to God. The severity of law, the the bold face exposure to God's holiness that, that results, even for someone such as Moses, great terror and fear. And there are many implications for our worship that sometimes what we want in worship is more akin to the experience at Sinai than it is Mount Zion. We, we crave the physical. And I was just thinking after the fact, after I preached that sermon, you know, it's funny when you walk into a very large, very uh, stylized worship experience or Christian concert, how similar it is to Sinai and not Zion. There's smoke, there's flashes of lights, there's powerful subwoofers that can take your face off, and everything is big and huge and powerful, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but if we crave that to help us, if we need that in order to worship, then we haven't left Mount Sinai. We, we can't make the approach to Zion in faith because we still crave the physical. So, we have not come to that. The terror, the gloom, the tempest. No, we have come to Zion. And let's look at this first statement. We're picking it up in verse 22. But you have come. This is a statement of present reality. 
You have come. He's not saying, as we discussed last week, uh, you will one day come. He's not saying uh, some of you have gone, meaning some of them who have died and have gone to Zion. He's saying all of you. Now, those people who I'm addressing this letter to, who are still alive and reading this, you have come to Mount Zion. It's still future, to be sure. This isn't home, at least not yet. But it is to be obtained. It is to be had and possessed through faith right now. If you look at verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 14, go ahead and turn there. Hebrews 10, 14, just a few pages back. It speaks to the finished work of Christ. It's not that we're still waiting on things to happen that our salvation depends on. In a sense, we are. We still, Paul says, we still await the day of adoption. But there, there's a finality in Christ's work that we begin to enjoy now. Chapter 10, verse 14 says this, For by a single offering, meaning the offering of his own self, his own body, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Already perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. It's done. In a sense, it's over. It is finished was his cry. So why does this matter? You have come to Zion. Is this practical for us to talk about in a day and time such as this? If you're a Christian, this is not the most spiritual 1 or 2% of the Christian life to think on these things and to realize this is where you are. Some of you uh, may be familiar with a man by the name of Derek Webb. Most of you probably aren't. He would belong to a band that was popular when I was growing up called Cademan's Call, and he did several solo projects. And there was an interview in 2005 where he said this, I feel like the majority of Christian artists who are out there are only writing songs about the most spiritual top 2% of life. And Scripture gives us a framework to talk about and to deal with and to process all of life. That's everything in creation. Scripture gives us a framework for things like politics and government. It gives us a framework for things like family and sexuality. It gives us a framework for all these things. And yet, for whatever reason, Christian artists are only interested in writing songs about that top 2%. The, the, what he means is the most spiritual experience of your life. Is he right? In a sense, yes. In another sense, no. If what he meant is that we should not chase a feeling and style in worship to create an atmosphere, like I was talking about earlier, uh, maybe a feeling of spirituality that's severed from real life, then yes and amen. We shouldn't want to do that in our worship. But unfortunately, what I think he meant was something else. Because Derek Webb is now apostate, having divorced his wife and now vehemently denying that God exists and hating the teachings of Christ. And sadly, what I think he meant, and I remember being disturbed by hearing him say this in the interview, that was back in 2005. What I remember thinking is that if the approach of faith 
If, if realizing what Christ has done is so out of bounds for you, if you want to sing about all sorts of other things, then there might be a real problem. Maybe Mount Zion didn't make sense to him. Do you understand? When we sing holy, 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 or crown him with many crowns, or great is thy faithfulness, or it is well with my soul. When we sing these songs, or when I read this text, but you have come to Mount Zion, to innumerable angels in festival gathering. When, when we read that, does that make sense? With your life? Does that mesh up? What does that have to do with politics and governments and family and sexuality like Derek Webb was talking about? Does that, does that have things to do with all of life? And don't you see the point? If there is such a God that we sing about in holy, 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 and if this is where we are, and if Sinai is not where we are, then Songs like that, speaking this way, has everything to do with everything. It changes how you live. And the point is this, even though marriage and family, the economy, politics, resource management, time itself, and so many other things, they're, they're very important and we need to talk about them. But one, one day, none of them are going to exist anymore. And even this life, even if the Lord grants you unprecedented longevity, will be as a tiny blip on the radar of the infinitely vast oceans of the unending now of God's presence. Let's read it again, beginning in verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That's where you are. Are the city, this city, this heavenly Jerusalem, the great king, the assembly of the firstborn, that is forever, brothers and sisters. And it is not merely where you will be one day, this is now, through faith, if you are in Christ. And in a sense, this is my job as a pastor. And this is why. When we're physically there, I won't really have this job anymore. And I'm sorry if this is too spiritual for you, talking about these realities and trying to push the upper limits of our ability to see and grasp it by faith. It's more real than your job. It's more real than your house. It's more real than the challenges that you've encountered on the way to get here from last week. It's more real than your grades. It's more real than the classes you take. It's more real than your health. My job description could be helping believers see, remember, and live consistently with the glory of Zion. And to invite others to join us. And I would argue that's the job description of every Christian. 
You're to encourage and help each other see that this is where we are. We need to live like this is real because it is and to invite others to join us there in Zion. This is part of the offense of the cross. Ever think about this? It's not just the basic truth of the gospel that's offensive. That there is such a thing as a God who is judge of all, creator of all, and we sinned against Him. We're the bad guys in the story. I mean, that's, that's part of the offense of the cross. That's real. Jesus, the Son of God, had, you were so bad, Jesus had to die for you to save you. You're the bad guy. Death is a result of sin. Like, we messed it up. It's our fault. But Jesus came to save us and had to die a brutal death in our place because that's what you deserved, and He loved us. And now we must repent and believe in Him through faith in order to be saved. Like, that on its own is offensive. But there's a part of the offense of the cross that it, it's just too good to be true. When, when I read this description of Zion, it, it flies in the face of the gospel of self-improvement or self-esteem. And that gospel, quote-unquote gospel, really sells. And it sells to those who have no real faith in Christ and no grasp of the heavenly Zion because there's just so much in the Bible that's wise and good teaching and that you can accept on its own merits. That's one area where there's just tons of false converts. So you talk about the wisdom of Jesus and the way to live life and and all of these wise principles that are embedded in Scripture and, and no one's offended, at least not most people, And you can fill big buildings and droves of people who will come and hear how Jesus helps them live a better life. But the instant you start talking about already being in the heavenly Jerusalem through faith and our hope being fully realized in an unending celebration with festival, with angels in the presence of God and Jesus mediating a new covenant through His blood eternally, And that's when people start looking at you like a crazy person. Because it's just so out of bounds. And we're saying, this is real right now. Come and join us. And that's not fringe spirituality. This is the basic assertion of the author of Hebrews and the rest of the New Testament. This is real. This is what you're yearning for. This is the city that God has given you. This is the foundation of your faith. And if it's not ending there, and if we're not going there, or to speak more accurately, if that is not coming here, and if faith does not place us there already, then there's just no point. And the gospel has no teeth at all. And it's not a message worth preaching or living for or dying for. But... It is. And so we sing, we celebrate, we preach, and we remind, and we summons, and we invite others to join us in the present reality of Mount Zion through faith. So let's investigate the place where we are and the place we are going and the place that is coming here. And in this text, there are seven attributes of Mount Zion. 
They mirror the description of Sinai, seven descriptions of Sinai, seven descriptions of Zion. We'll only get, have enough time, I think, to look at three today, and Lord willing, we'll cover this, the last four next week. So let's look at it again. Verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. The first comparison we see is that these three are supposed to be taken together. Some of the structure of this passage, I won't get overly nerdy with you about how this text works. Um, it's, they're kind of set off by uh, the conjunction and. So he'll, he'll list several nouns and then he'll say and. And that marks which of these are supposed to be taken together. And some of the ands that are there in your English translation are just additions to help us understand. So these three are to be taken together. There are three descriptions of the same thing. Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, all meaning the same thing. And they're, they're set in contrast to the first thing that was said about the other thing, beginning in verse 18, what may be touched. Remember, he doesn't use the name Sinai for specific reasons. That was last week. But the, ver- the verses, the comparison is to what may be touched. And the sense here is emphatic. He's saying, no, but instead, you have come to Mount Zion. There's not a blend. There's not a gradual progression from what may be touched to this heavenly Zion. It's a night and day difference. It's the brightness of a supernova versus the darkness of a black hole. It is just so very different, although there is much that is the same. It's still God. It's still the one true God. It's still the royal law of Jesus. There's still blood. There's still a covenant. But everything is different. And just so very different at Zion. It's the difference between... The the Bible uses this category a lot. It's the difference between a shadow and the reality. So there, there is some similarity, right? When you stand in front of bright light or in the sun in a bright day, the shadow that is cast has some similarity to you. But that shadow has almost no similarity to you. It's a two-dimensional projection of a three-dimensional living being. That's how different Sinai is to Zion. So this is the first thing he says, Mount Zion. In the Old Testament, Jerusalem is referred to as Zion. And you can almost use those interchangeably. When you read Zion in the Old Testament, you can almost interpose the word Jerusalem. It is the mountain on which Jerusalem was built. But it is not the city that was from ancient times that is significant. Ruled by Melchizedek, taken at some point by the Jebusites, and then taken back for God's purposes by David. The point is that that is where God chose to set his name. He told the children of Israel, when you get into the land that I'm giving you, I'm going to designate a place where I'm going to set my name, and that's where you'll come and worship me. That's what made Jerusalem significant. There wasn't anything special about the geography, okay? Or the dirt that it's built on. It's, it's God's purposes at play in choosing Jerusalem. And this is how God speaks of it in the Old Testament. Things like this. The Lord has founded Zion. And in her, the afflicted of His people find refuge. There's this, there's this idea that God Himself is the one who builds it. 
even though it was people, even though it was uh, different tribes who, who worked and built Jerusalem as it was in the ancient times, it's God who founds Zion because it's his purposes at work salvifically in that city. This was to be the place where his name was praised and his people found rest and refuge from their enemies and where they could draw near to him. In the prophets, the theme of Zion being reborn and rebuilt is so overwhelmingly present that to even mention it in passing is to misrepresent how big of an idea this is in the Old Testament. Over and over and over, we see all of these promises about God rebuilding Zion. And all of those promises, specifically when you get to Ezekiel, are too big and too beautiful to be about the literal Mount Zion over there in modern-day Israel. Here's one example from Isaiah 51. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. That can't happen in a literal city unless we're talking about after the return of Christ. It hasn't happened yet. So many of those promises that are embedded in the Old Testament prophecies have yet to come. That's why you still need to read your Old Testament. The second descriptor of this this, uh, unit of three is the city of the living God. And this statement, I think, unifies this section with the last chapter. Speaking of Abraham in chapter 11 in the hall of faith, this is what the author said. For he, speaking of Abraham, was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. That's verse 6 in chapter 11. And also speaking of at least the patriarchs, but more likely, I think he's the author of Hebrews is speaking about all of those who persevered through faith in the Old Testament. He says this in verse 16, but as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. That's verse 16. And this is why I titled the message as I have. To Mount Zion, see the city. Through faith, you need to behold this city that he has given to his people. Has given, not will give one day to you, but is yours already through faith in Christ. And I've got news for all of us redneck redneck types who love woods and not having neighbors that you can see. And having space to spread out. And I grew up on 100 acres, so that's, that's home for me, right? I, I prefer that. But what God has prepared for us, where He is bringing us, where we already are through faith in the heavenly realm, through union with Jesus, is a city. And it's going to be a city forever. And just as a side note, th- this could be a message about Unity in the body of Christ again. I've done a lot of those recently, but this could be a message about unity because what God has for us is not a, a isolated parcel of land in the heavenly realm where you can just be by yourself and enjoy the presence of God. It's a city where we're going to be close together. God desires us to be close to Him 
and close to each other. And so living in this world should reflect your desires to be in that one. If you're isolating yourselves from the body of Christ, then you don't really want that city. But that's a different message. Heaven is not a you and Jesus thing. It's all of us together with him. When you read the revelation to John, what do you see? You see us all together at the wedding supper, all together around the throne, all together in the city. But our emphasis today is mainly just to help us see the city itself and what goes on in the city and what it's like. And then this is the next uh, phrase. I want to focus a little bit on this. He says, the city of the living God. This is an interesting title of the living God. It carries the sense that this is his city, that he is the builder. And this strengthens, I think, the ties to chapter 11. God and life are are unified in this sense that God is the one who gives life. He's the God who is living. Anything that is life is from him. And death is, in a sense, opposed to him. Because he is the giver of life. And that's why when we speak about the hereafter or heaven, when we say afterlife, that's not really accurate. Because where we're going, nearness to God, dwelling in the city of our living God is life. Here is closer to death than there is. Nearness to God is life because he is the living God. We are hanging by a thread just barely suspended above death itself. Paul even speaks this way. We are being given over to death every day. In this tent we groan. And this is the problem with what may be touched from verse 18 in the first side of the comparison. What may be touched, the physical, has the characteristic of being mortality. The problem is not that what we have here now or what the Israelites had at Mount Sinai was merely physical. This isn't dualism, okay? Uh, Dualism is uh, matter, bad, spirit, good, right? This is not dualism that he's talking about here. It's that until the world is remade, all of this, all that you see, even your own bodies, as many of us well know, are in bondage to decay. We're under the curse of sin. And all of it must be shaken and removed. Look, look down. We're going to skip forward a little bit to verses 25 in chapter 12. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The phrase once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made. In order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God an acceptable, uh, acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. What you've received in Zion is not better because it's merely spiritual. Rather, it is better because it is unshakable. 
It can't be undone. It is not in bondage to decay. Christ has even purified the heavenly temple by His sacrifice as well. And when God shakes the earth and the heavens, all that is in bondage to decay will be undone forever. And only what is eternal and untainted by sin or redeemed in Christ will remain. It's simply common sense. Death and decay is bad. (laughs) Life and immortality are good. And that's what he's given you. It's the city of the living God. It, it, is, it is such a city full of life that that, that could be its title, the city of life. It, it is so full and teeming with life because God is at its center. We'll talk about that next week. And it is already received through faith. In the last of this unit of three, the heavenly Jerusalem the Greek word for heavenly carries the sense of celestial, uh, of, of the celestial realm. And this is where Bunyan got his term for the celestial city in Pilgrim's or Christian's journey. And here's the thing. That city over in modern day Israel, as, as interesting as it is for historical and cultural reasons, is not the capital of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The whole reason there was such a thing as a city where God chose to set his name was to shadow the reality that already existed in heaven. The heavenly Jerusalem is from everlasting to everlasting. And the vision of the revelation to John of the city coming down shows that. That that city that descends is nothing like that city over in modern day Israel. Your citizenship, brothers and sisters, is one of the royal family in the heavenly Jerusalem. Through Christ, your names are already there. We're going to talk about this in a second. Not as future residents or even as honored guests, but as founding members of that city. Through Christ, your place in the heavenly Jerusalem is more ancient and essential than King David or even the great Melchizedek. And then he says this, and two innumerable angels in festival festival gathering. I keep mispronouncing that word because of dyslexic tendencies. Festal gathering. And it's not even a good translation of the word. There's a few things I want to point out about that, but we'll come to that in a second. Let's talk about the angels first. If you're familiar with our series through Hebrews, the author of Hebrews is, is very oft to mention angels. He, he loves referencing them and comparing their glory to Christ and what their role in redemptive history is versus our place in redemptive history. But he, he's mentioning them here in a very positive light to innumerable angels. This is what we've come to. This city is already filled with myriads. This is the real Greek word, myriads of angels. That's, that's a unit in Greek thought that's 10,000 essentially. So he's saying myriads upon myriads, tons of tens of thousands of angels. And it was used, this word is used to convey this idea of just simply uncountable. There's too many to count. And let me just say, we know very little about the exact nature of angels. And it does not help much to speculate on and on and on about the heavenly beings. 
However, there is also an indication here of the myriads of angels as there's a variety of type and there's a variety of job description. When we get to the revelation to John, he speaks of different types of angels. They have different names. And, and they have different job descriptions. So don't think of angel when he says it here as just they're all the same. We might not even be able to distinguish their faces. But it's, it's a very diverse and rich population that's filling the city with different job descriptions and roles and orders of glory, all focused on praising the Lord himself. And the author, I think by saying this, wants you to get a sense of the wonder and majesty of this city of the living God. He wants you to sense its vitality. Sinai was or is a barren pile of rocks in the wilderness. And when we get there in the scene in Exodus, it's just the people and this mountain that's about to break because of the glory of God descending on it. It's it's barren, it's it's hot, it's it's dusty, and it's just kind of plain and bare. And frightening. But the heavenly Jerusalem, the population there is already full of splendor and majesty, wonderfully diverse in appearance and various job descriptions, but all transfixed on the joy that is there in the presence of God. And then he says this in festal gathering. I'm going to be a little bit more technical here for a few moments. Uh, than I usually am. So listen closely and pay attention. I believe that a sermon should have something for everyone. So for you uh, grammar nerds or Bible nerds, theology nerds, this is a little bit here for you. There is a significant interpretive decision going on here. And virtually all translations have to do some interpretation to render it as it is. This word here that's translated uh, festal gathering... It only occurs once in the entire New Testament, and it's right here. And the only place it occurs where this author, the author of Hebrews, is drawing from is from the Greek Old Testament. And every time it's used in the Greek Old Testament, it refers to the religious festivals of the Jews. So the, fast, uh, the Passover feast or the Feast of Booths, that big celebration centered in the place that God would set his name, that's what this word is used to refer to in the Greek Old Testament. And there's some question as to whether this is referring to the next statement, the assembly of the firstborn, or if it's talking about the angels. And because of the placement of the conjunction and, I think it has to refer to the angels. Some translations render it something like this, general assembly, I think that's how the NASB has it, or solemn assembly. And that won't do for a couple of reasons, because the word translated assembly of the firstborn, that's ecclesia. And the, the just raw translation of ecclesia is assembly. So it would be too redundant for us to translate this festival as assembly. It'd be uh, a celebration or solemn assembly and the assembly. It doesn't work. So here's a good translation, I think. This is from the commentary that I'm relying on to help me through some of these issues. Lane puts it this way, and to innumerable companies of angels in festal gathering. Here's my attempt at a translation that's just straight literal. To myriads of angels, to the festival, 
That's, that's the sense of intensification. We speak this way occasionally. We say another thing to intensify the first thing. It'd be something like this. He took the matter to court, to the Supreme Court, right? You, you say another thing to intensify the first thing. So that's what's happening here. To innumerable angels, to myriads of angels, to the festival. And the idea is that these heavenly beings, this is a festival already happening in heaven, all centered around the sacrifice of the lamb that's going to be spoken of here in a little bit. The blood of the new covenant, every feast that happened in the Old Testament centered around some type of sacrifice. And so in heaven, the sacrifice has already happened. Jesus is mediating the new covenant through his blood. And so the festival has already begun. And you and I, brothers and sisters, are part of the subject matter of this festival, of this celebration. To fa- let, let me paraphrase this passage. This is to add more words around to give a sense of what I think it means. You have come to innumerable angels already getting the sacred feast and the festival started on account of the glory and gravity of the new covenant people of God. That's the sense it carries. And this is what we see in Revelation 5. This is speaking of the angels, not, not us yet, but the angels who are gathered around God's throne. It says this, and they sing a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. They shall reign. So we are part of the reason that the angels have something to celebrate and talk about. What they're praising Jesus for, even already as the party is breaking forth before all of us arrive, is what he has done in you and me. And this is why general assembly, what, what comes to your mind when you, you hear general assembly? Maybe a business meeting or, or something like that, a congress or parliament. And I, the word has to carry this sense of joy, celebration, festival. And it is one of the main distinguishing characteristics between Sinai and Zion. The law brings wrath. There is no joy in mere do's and don'ts. The contrast of this phrase to myriads of angels, to the festival, is regarding Sinai, to a blazing fire. There's danger in fire. There's, there's wrath represented in fire. There is, there is unmasked holiness breaking out against the people and against even creation and against animals. But here, festival, joy, celebration. It's why I think John marks out the wedding in Cana as Jesus' first miracle These earthenware pots that were used for the Jewish rites of purification, he turns into wine to get the party going further. That's the point. What Jesus brings is joy and celebration and festival. Great joy and obedience to the royal law of Christ comes from resting in the finished work of Christ. This is from uh, Lane again. This aspect of the vision of the heavenly Jerusalem recalls the use in chapter 4, verse 9 of the rare term Sabbath rest. 
which refers to the festivity and praise of a Sabbath celebration to describe the future heavenly rest of the people of God. Heavenly Jerusalem is a place of blessing where the redeemed can enjoy Uh, can join with angels and archangels and with all the company in heaven to the celebratory worship of God. I asked last week, and I'll ask it again, are you leading, living, and serving under the fear and obligation of Sinai or with the joyful festival of Zion? If someone were to look closely at your life, which one would they see? Would they see Sinai? Or would they see a preview, a pre-enactment of the joy of Zion? These are important questions because even Peter says, when someone asks you regarding the hope that is within you, the indication is that even before the unbelieving world, there's an indication in our happiness, in our joy, in our belief that this is where we are even now and the celebration is already happening, that they'll ask us, why do you have that hope? And this is the answer, because this is where I am. This is what, where Jesus has brought me because of the blood of the eternal covenant. And they'll either look at you like a crazy person, or the Spirit will work through your words, and they will come to faith. Verse 23. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. A few things to note just on the interpretation of this. As I said earlier, this, this assembly is the word ecclesia. And the vast majority of the times it's used in the New Testament, uh, it's translated church. In some translations, you might be holding it, it says church. Um, I think in a very few cases in the, in the New Testament, it shouldn't be rendered that way. And the only other place in Hebrews where the author uses the word ecclesia is in quoting Psalm 2, 11 and 12. Uh, I'm sorry, he quotes Psalms in chapter 2, 11 and 12. Here's what he says. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. This is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. That's ecclesia. And so if we're going to call it church here, we need to call it church there, but it won't work because he's quoting the Old Testament. The Greek version. So I think this is a more technical definition of just gathering. That, that's what it means, okay? The, the church is, is more given in its descriptive theological sense in Hebrews than just the, the offhand term church like Paul uses. And there's another interesting thing about this passage, and it's very difficult for you to see it in an English translation. That word firstborn. As I read through Hebrews multiple times and read through chapter 12 multiple times, getting ready for all of the preaching and and this message even as well, you don't notice this. Firstborn is plural. Read it again. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. He's not saying the assembly of those who belong to the firstborn, namely Jesus. He's saying the assembly of all those who are firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. That's different than what we might think because Jesus has already been introduced to us in chapter 1 as the firstborn. But now he's saying plural. All of those who are united by faith with Jesus enjoy firstborn status. This is significant. 
And the point, I think, is that this is what the redeemed are. This is what the church is. It's nothing less than those who now enjoy, by faith, firstborn status with Jesus. You're not saved to come into secondborn status. That's the point. You're not thirdborn, fourthborn, whatever. There's not a triage of Christians. The apostles here and all the rest of us here, maybe the prophets scattered in there, uh, the, the heroes of faith in chapter 11, they, they don't maintain a higher place in order of glory. We all, through faith, because of what Christ has done, enjoy firstborn status. And we compare that with Esau. We've already met Esau in chapter 12, who despised his firstborn birthright and gave it up for a bowl of lentil stew. And yet we, through faith in Christ, have the firstborn blessing. Through faith in Jesus, we will not be like Esau, but rather we will receive the blessing that belongs to Jesus. It's not two different blessings. The blessings He has and the blessings that you will receive. It's the same. Because we're in Him. And then we come to this phrase, enrolled in heaven. Literally, it's inscribed. I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 32. I think Exodus, the situation at Mount Sinai, was obviously in the author's mind. So this is probably what he's referencing thematically to get to this statement enrolled or inscribed in heaven. Exodus 32, beginning in verse 30. And this is after the incident with the golden calf, right? They come to Mount Sinai. They hear the sound of a voice declaring the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. Moses goes up, receives the law. He stays up there for 40 days and comes, comes back down. And what have they done? They've broken the first commandment. They've built the golden calf. And they, they say, this is Yahweh. This is I am. He will lead us now. And here's what God says. This is after that whole incident and the response. The next day... Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord. So he goes back up the mountain and he said, alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sins, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I've spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. This is why I said last week, forgiveness doesn't happen at Sinai. The one who sins against me, I will blot out of my book. But for those who are in Christ, who are covered by the blood of the eternal covenant. Your names are inscribed, engraved in heaven. We see this idea of, of a book that contains the names of those who are redeemed throughout the Bible. Psalm 69, verses 27 and 28. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled 
among the righteous. You can also see this in Daniel 12, verse 1, and Isaiah 4, 3, if you want to look those up later. Daniel 12, 1, Isaiah 4, 3. And then even in the New Testament, Jesus says this to the apostles after they return from seeing great signs and wonders through their ministry. He says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. You can see it also in Philippians 4, 3. Revelation 13.8, Revelation 17.8. I'll read two others from the Revelation to John. Revelation 3.5. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. In Revelation 20, verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. There is so much more to say about all of these ideas. We've only covered three of them. And Lord willing, we'll resume with that next week. But just a few things for application here as we close. Really, there's nothing else to be asked or said but this. Is your name written in that book? And how can you be sure? Isn't that it? I mean, that's the most important question. Is your name there in the Lamb's book of life? Permanently enrolled, engraved in heaven or not? And how can you be sure? Is your name written in that book? And the only condition that's explicitly stated here is of the firstborn. It means that if you're not in Christ, your name is not written there. But if you are in Christ, then your name is there. The verb, when it says engraved or enrolled, is a perfect participle. And I know it's, it's the weekend, so you shouldn't have to think about grammar. But it's a perfect participle. One translator rendered it permanently engraved. Like, like Jesus said in, in the Revelation to John that I just read, and I will never blot his name out. Once your name is there through Christ, it cannot be taken away. Those whom the Father has given the Son have their names there and they can never be blotted out. Your status, your name in Christ being enrolled in that book in heaven is as sure and secure as Jesus' place in heaven. For you to lose your right to be there would be for Him to lose His right to be there, which simply cannot happen. Faith in Christ is the key. key. Those who have faith. For those who have faith, the author of Hebrews has already said that Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and that God is not ashamed to be called their God. Why? Because as we read in chapter 10, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And how can you be sure? How can you be sure that you're not like Derek Webb? How can you be sure for yourself? You can be sure for yourself that your name is there and it all comes down to trust in Christ. It's nothing fancy. There's no five-step process to figure out one way or another. It's do you trust in Christ now. 
Don't talk to me about what happened 10 years ago about, or about your parents or going to church nine months before you were born. I was there too, but I was still a rebel and hated God until He brought me back to life. And the problem is many people will deceive themselves. And much of ministry, I think, especially pastoral ministry, and I'm, I understand it's offensive and not fun sometimes, is to do my dead level best to make sure that you don't arrive there at Judgment Day waiting and expecting to enter this city that we've been describing. Not another place, not another uh, future reality, but this city that I've been describing. You are wanting to enter that, but you have lived your life to deceive yourself. And you will hear the words, depart from me, I never knew you. Not I knew you once and then you walked away, but I never knew you. Depart from me. So we'll end by asking a few questions. And these, these are presented in a, a side-by-side way to help you answer the question for yourself. You can't do this for another person. I can't do this for you. You have to ask these questions and answer them honestly. And this is in the flavor of Sinai versus Zion. Do you trust in Jesus' advice about life Or do you trust Him with your life? Do you just love His teaching and philosophy, the way of Jesus maybe? Or do you love the person of Jesus? Do you seek what Jesus can give you, even with confidence that He will give you good things? Or do you have rich confidence and joy that Jesus has given Himself? And all things already to you. Do you go to church out of obligation, wishing things were better, maybe? Or do you love the people of God and eagerly anticipate and pre enact the fellowship, festival, and feasting that we will have and already have? Do you try to do good and obey the law of God out of fear and trembling? Gloom, darkness? Or do you desire to live a life pleasing to the Lord out of joy because you're a son or daughter? Is all this talk of Sinai versus Zion uh, all too spiritual or you know, that, that top 2% that's not really practical for you? Is it just ricocheting off of your mind? Does it make no sense? That's not practical. I don't... I'm not given anything. I don't get anything out of that. And I'm not saying you have to like my preaching, but as I describe this city, does it sound like home to you? Or is it fanciful nonsense? That's between you and the Lord, and you must answer those questions or ones like them to know whether or not you really trust in Christ. If He's changed you, And all of those questions are merely to help you honestly answer the question, do I trust in Him? Do I trust Him now? And if not, you can trust Him today. The door is not yet closed. The way is not yet shut. The invitation is still outstanding to join the wedding feast in Zion today. Let's pray.
Father, please let today be the day of salvation. Maybe for someone who has been a part of church and Christian things for a long time, but has lived under the cloud of gloom and darkness of Sinai their whole life. And they've not served you or desired to obey you out of a sense of joy and festival and celebration of what Christ has done, but of fear and dread of judgment. May today be the day that they trust Christ to provide everything necessary to be pleasing to the Lord. Thank you that we have come to Zion. In Jesus' name, amen.